Welcome to the Black and Brainy Podcast, an independent production weaving together modern psychology, ancient philosophy, and the experience of the African diaspora. We're your co-hosts, Dr. Laura Turner-Essel and Dr. Miriam Kadeba, two PhDs, members of the global Black community, and professionals striving to help our people thrive. Again, welcome, and here's our episode for today. Okay, Dr. Miriam, we are back. Hi, Dr. Laura. How you doing? Hey, hey. I'm doing well. I'm uh, letting go of the caffeine, as I was telling you over the weekend. I stopped coffee <laughs> actually two weeks ago. So I am hoping that that brings me more, well, less anxiety. Mm-hmm. and also more clarity and I've heard that it should bring me you know more um kind of messages more I'd be able to download more inspiration more wisdom from the ancestors by not having my mind clouded with caffeine and adrenaline and everything that mm-hmm. you know gets stirred up when I'm having three four cups of coffee every day Look, that is so real. And I respect this so much for you because basically <laughs> for me, okay. Emphasis on the, for me, because you have no intention. <laughs> of right. Listen, I get it. I get it. <laughs> no judgment. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. Okay. This is, we can be honest about where we are in all our journeys. Like this is how you're able to tap in. Um, I, and I, and I just respect that so much for you, as I mentioned, (laughs) (laughs) I'll, I'll take it. I love it. Yeah, I know. It's a tool of the trade, you know, it's kind of like one of those things that helps us get through our days, especially when we are, you know, burning the midnight oil and having to work in stressful spaces where we have to be on all the time. It is, you know, it works for those purposes. I'm just trying to wean myself off of it. So we'll see. We'll see if um, I'm still successful by the next time we have an episode. <laughs> You'll have to check in with me we about will. that. Um, but yeah, so speaking of downloads and inspiration, today's topic is belief, belief and faith and trust. Mm-mm. And so these, um, these ideas could mean a lot of things. I mean, when you talk about trust, I think we're accustomed to thinking about trust between people, like in our interpersonal relationships, maybe in our romantic relationships. Mm-hmm. But this is more about trust, like in the universe, in the nature of things, um, in what many of us might call God, in a higher power, in spirit, in um ancestors whatever whatever form that may take a belief a trust a faith in powers beyond our human understanding 
So, I mean, that's not a big topic or anything. This should be, this should be simple. We can cover this, knock this out in about half an hour, right? Oh, yeah. No, yeah 45 <laughs> minutes tops. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, we do not like to tackle small issues here at Black and Brainy. We go for the big stuff. So this is, I think, one of the biggest. <laughs> um, yeah, when you think about just, how many different different definitions do we have of not just God, but of religion, of spirituality? How many different interpretations and perspectives on that exist in the world? Right. A lot, right? A yeah. lot. And how like complex and sometimes intertwined even. Sometimes those words are used um, like interchangeably sometimes they're mutually exclusive I mean it is it's vast so vast there are estimated to be approximately 4200 religious and spiritual traditions in the world and that's just the ones that have been you know enumerated and kind of categorized and so um Obviously, we're not trying to talk about all 4,000 of those today. <laughs> we're not getting into <laughs> we're not getting into specifics here, but we are just trying to take a look at, you know, of course, the role of religion and spirituality in our mental health, in our um, psychological lives, and of course, from an African diasporic perspective, the role that religion and spirituality has played for Black folks' well-being, um, both historically and now, right, and into the future. What does this mean for us, and what are some of the ways that we can think about this? What's some of the research that is out there that helps us to think about this for ourselves? Right. Yeah, and I know um, some of the things that even you and I had been reflecting on as we were preparing for um, for, for this episode is diving into our own journey and our own path. Um, I know that you had, um, you know, you, you already highlighted how vast this topic is and something that we also wanted to be intentional this time around is to sort of bring in a little bit more of that personal, um, experience around even our own journeys. Um, yeah. through talking it out, we realized that we had vastly different, um, trajectories when it came to yes. <laughs> spirituality. And it was quite interesting, the things that we're still learning about one another, right? Yeah, absolutely. Our paths have been really, um, you know, in a lot of ways similar and in a lot of ways, um, so drastically different. So what has your journey been in terms of your spiritual development and maybe your religious outlook? And then where would you say you've landed now at this stage in your life? So having been born and raised in, um, in Cote d'Ivoire um, with parents from Mali and Burkina Faso. So I was raised Catholic because um, my father is Catholic, my mother is Muslim. So very Catholic household. So got all the sacraments, the Holy Communion, confirmation, baptism, 
that's not even the order. <laughs> Let's you know where I landed on, right? But even though um, that was our upbringing, we were also very culturally involved in recognizing and celebrating holidays associated with Islam. So anything around Eid, Ramadan was a big part of also our culture and my upbringing. So I grew up very, I guess, mixed, right? In all those, mm -hmm. um, in those religious beliefs. And at the same time, being in West Africa, there was also an understanding or some sort of acknowledgement of um, traditional African spirituality that was infused in some of our practices. And in retrospect, I mean, at the time, I really didn't have a clear understanding of what was going on. It just felt like it was just what we did, right? Like we celebrated and um, to some extent, like recognized ancestors and things like that, but didn't necessarily connect that to even religion or spirituality. And then mm. when I came to the US, um, I immediately went skewed all the way to the other side of like, atheist and no more belief because I was like, I'm free. I don't have to go to church. I don't have to do any of those things that I was forced to do every Sundays and spent quite a few years really disassociating myself from anything religion and spirituality, because to me, it felt very attached to something that was forced upon me and not something that I necessarily chose. Um, Eventually, I started moving a little bit more towards even identifying as agnostic and thinking, okay, I, I don't know, but I also don't not, I mean, I just, I don't know. So I think that's a safe place to just be in the not knowing, right? Um, I will say over the past year or so, I've been wanting to reconnect a little bit more with what spirituality and even a religious practice means for me. Um, mm. that journey mirrors, I think, uh, other journeys that I'm going through, but I think it's been something that I've been circling back to more recently around, um, owning a little bit more my narrative and thinking about what does spirituality and a religious practice would look like for me and in my life. Mm -hmm. Wow. So rich. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what about you? Well, um, you know, I'd say that I was raised in a kind of eclectic, loose Christian household. My parents weren't super religious, but it, it was almost by default, you know, being an African-American family in the Midwest, um, the church was just something expected. It was just something that people did in my family my parents just kind of fell in line with that. So we attended Baptist churches. Um, I went to Lutheran schools um, from middle school onward. My sister went to Catholic school. So we had different kind of, um, you know, perspectives in that way that we were cultivating. But um, I think during that process, I tried to build this personal relationship with Jesus and with God, um, as it was defined for me then in the ways that were prescribed, you know, for a teenage girl and, and going to churches, um, primarily black churches and then white schools. It just highlighted for me that even 
religion was um, <laughs> racialized and mm -hmm. different culturally, depending on, you know, who was doing the interpretation of the scripture. And um, but you know, I got a lot from growing up in the black church and just being exposed to the leadership structure and kind of all that. But as I got into college, I think like you, I, you know, started feeling like, okay, great, that's done. Now my obligations are over. I can <laughs> actually go be a real person and not fall under the scrutiny and the judgment that I felt in most like religious spaces. And so I felt free then to explore other, you know, traditions. So I started looking at Eastern religions, Buddhism, Hinduism, um, and then I got really into Rastafarianism. And I think that was just something that really resonated with me because of the Pan-African kind of Garveyite connection. And also, um, you know, there was still this element of faith, but it was more so about faith in ourselves as a people and a faith that the God that we were worshiping was someone who was for us, you know, who was on our side. Um, so that was just beautiful to me, but, you know, I fell out of love with that too, <laughs> because I started to realize that all of these traditions were really just structures that people set up to try and, uh, well, I started to feel like they were just structures that people set up to make sense of the world and to understand their particular circumstances, but that they were limited to their perspective. And so it was hard to find anything that could account for everything you know what I mean it was like all of these traditions come out of a very specific cultural context and time and place and so nothing felt very satisfying so I think I landed at the same place that you described it was a agnosticism that was like comfortable you know like I don't need to know I just know that all these different people believe different things and I feel like it's valid I don't think they're all wrong I also don't think they're all right Right. Uh, but I think, you know, studying psychology, I just got more into the question of, so what does this do for people? Like, what does this help people feel? What does it connect them to? What does it help them understand about their lives in the world? And not necessarily who's right, you know? Yes. Um, as I'm getting older, I, I do think that my practice, I say, is more spiritual. Um, I'm thinking about what's my connection to my ancestors, what's my connection just to my purpose and what are some of the practices that I can have in place that help me feel grounded and help me feel like I'm, you know, connected to something bigger than myself, but it doesn't necessarily have the name or the face, you know, or the words that I grew up attaching to it. I really like what you said, um, like, I mean, all of it. Um, and then towards the end, when you mentioned like, sort of feeling in a more spiritual place. And it sort of takes me to trying to understand even the difference between religion and spirituality. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we do in our podcast is to try to give um, some definition. So at least try to make sense um, yes. what it is that we're talking about. So Dr. Laura. <laughs> you want me to pull out the old handy dandy <laughs> APA dictionary here? <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. So according to the American Psychological Association, um, when we talk about 
religion and spirituality, we're actually talking about two different things. And so you've probably heard that before. People will say, well, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual or whatever. And then some people kind of lump the two together. Um, but according to APA, these are different kind of facets maybe of the same coin. So when we talk about spirituality, we're referring to a concern for things of the spirit. And so then what's the spirit? The spirit is the non-physical part of the person. So this um, encompasses the mental and moral and emotional characteristics that make up the core of someone's identity. And this, um, I guess, this vital force that we think of as animating the bodies of living creatures, right? So yeah, you're walking around, you're alive because your heart is beating and you're breathing, but what is it that makes you really alive? What makes you you? And that's what people refer to as the spirit. Or we can talk about the soul because spirituality is also related to the soul. And that's the deepest center of a person's identity and the seat of his or her most important moral, emotional, and aesthetic experiences. So this is like a pretty hard to pin down, but really <laughs> it encompasses a lot of what we think of as kind of the ephemeral, you know, like the outside of our non, our, our physical selves. When we talk about religion, this is more specific. So this is a system of both spiritual beliefs um, and practices that are typically organized around the worship of a powerful deity or deities. And it involves behaviors such as prayer, meditation, or participation in collective rituals. So other common features of organized religions are the belief that certain moral teachings have divine authority and the recognition that certain people or places or texts or objects are holy or sacred. So you can see how that's a little more narrow, a little more pinned down, and we can kind of picture what religion means, but spirituality is a little broader than that. Mm -hmm. um, anything to add to that, Dr. Marion? No, I think that was, that was really well said. Um, and even reading or, you know, understanding those definitions and juxtaposed with one another, like really shows the contrast between those two those two terms, spirituality and religion. Yeah, so here's my question. Do you think that most people see a difference between the two? Or do you think that for a lot of people or even most people, those two things are one and the same? Probably some time ago, I would say that people merge both and saying saying religion oftentimes encompassed spirituality or spiritual belief or practice. I'd say more recently, um, those two terms have been talked about um, separately, or even when I have conversations with clients or folks that I interact with or friends and family, um, there tends to be a general understanding that those two things are different what's been your experience um I think that you know when I was younger I would see those two as the same but I've come to differentiate them in my own life and then I think working with clients 
students too, as a therapist. And then um, just beyond that, working with students and just working with people in general, <laughs> I've come to realize that, you know, that can be teased apart. People actually um, do, you know, as they go through their journeys, often tease those two apart and embrace one or the other. Um, I think, you know, if someone considers themselves religious, then for them, that also encompasses their spirituality. But for a lot of people that consider themselves spiritual, sometimes they're rejecting religion um, and their embrace of spirituality is um, a move to kind of both differentiate and sometimes to let go of a particular religious system or religious practice that maybe they've had a bad experience with or just that hasn't served them in some way or another. So I think that's how I've come to think about the two as, as distinct, but yeah, that makes a lot of sense. interesting. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So um, when we think about religion and spirituality, you know, obviously there's a lot of different things that we could talk about here, <laughs> but I'm really interested as we're, you know, discussing this idea of people kind of growing in their views or in their practices, like, are there models of that? Are there um, studies or is there like a body of research that looks at how that happens for people, regardless of which particular spiritual tradition they choose or fall into or grow up in, um, what is there a general pattern that people go through as they're developing this sense of themselves or this part of themselves? Just like we think about people's intellectual development or um, cognitive development, um, there are, as you can imagine, models of spiritual development that. Uh, the field of psychology and other fields, obviously like theology um, and even sociology have looked at. Um, so maybe we can talk about what that looks like for different people or from different perspectives. Cause I think, you know, there are a lot of models out there and not all of them remain true for every person. And they might not all map onto someone's individual reality. Mm -hmm. So it's good to kind of think about the different ways that people have thought about this over the centuries. Okay. Obviously, every spiritual tradition has its own model of spiritual development. So if you look within Christianity or within Judaism or within, um, you know, any religious uh, or spiritual tradition, um, you know, you're going to find, you know, Ifa, uh, Vodon, you're going to find an explanation of what they expect to see people go through or how they expect to see people grow and develop as they start from, you know, just getting into it to being like, um, you know, as, as you would say, like fully grown in, mm -hmm. into the faith, right? Um, but I guess in broad strokes, in many indigenous religions, like for instance, the Sangoma of South Africa, one of the key features is that individuals have to make like repeated visits to the spirit realm and that can happen through dreams or trances or rituals or other means and they have to undergo 
many experiences of like death and rebirth before they can attain high levels of spiritual development. So in this way, resurrection is actually a really common thing and, you know, people can achieve it through a lot of different means. I've also seen fasting and psychedelics and other kind of rituals that might be used until the person becomes skilled or powerful enough to reach these kind of mind states, these mental states at will all on their own just by wanting to be there. So I find that really interesting because when I think of resurrection, just because of my own Christian socialization and upbringing, I think of that as being something unique to Christianity, but it's not. It's actually a really ancient and recurring thing in a lot of um, indigenous traditions as well. Mm -hmm. This idea of being born again, dying to certain parts of yourself and having to come back um, and come back at hopefully at a higher level. Right. Um, not physically, but just mentally or spiritually. And then in other traditions, there's like a set of tasks or skills that you have to master before you achieve the status of, you know, shaman or spiritual healer or whatever it is that you're aiming for. And so a lot of that revolves around being of service to others, meaning you're interpreting other people's dreams or you're healing illnesses or you're resolving conflicts. You know, maybe you're like the peacemaker, the mediator within a family or within the clan. Um, maybe you're officiating important ceremonies like marriages or funerals. So these acts of community service or helping others are the marker of a person's level of spiritual development. And, and that's fascinating because the emphasis then is on one's usefulness to the community rather than just on self-improvement or like personal enlightenment. I think that in a lot of more Western traditions, there's this idea that religion is between you and God. And it's about how you as a person kind of get better, become a, you know, better person. But this in a lot of um, African indigenous, as well as, you know, just global indigenous traditions, your marker of spiritual development is more about how useful you are to other people, how much you can serve other people. That's what I was going to highlight, like this element of service to your community being so mm -hmm. central to your spiritual enlightenment and spiritual development. Um, I just keep like wondering how, um, how connecting that must feel right and how probably mm -hmm. throughout the years that's been part of what allowed communities to be able to survive and sustain themselves through generations and generations being able to um, emphasize service yeah absolutely so it has a really practical use as well as giving people that higher state of um you know spiritual uplift and, and belonging and connection and then you know, of course, we can also measure a person's spiritual development by their familiarity with whatever the sacred texts are in their particular tradition. So whether that means you can, like, you know, recount all the parables or lessons or even list, like, different ancestral lineages. I know that some traditions require you to be able to memorize and, and recite, like, the lineages um, of your, your particular faith. And that obviously demonstrates like an intellectual commitment to the tradition. So um, then we think about traditions like Christianity and Judaism. 
And again, a lot of times, you know, self-development is thought about in more individualist terms, you know, um, defined by the quality of the relationship between the individual and God. But still, I think it does, even in those traditions, move from an inward focus um, where you're more worried about whether you're in compliance with whatever the religious laws or commandments are to like your interpersonal dealings with other people. So whether you can practice certain virtues like forgiveness or justice or kindness or whatever. And then, you know, the highest stage of course is like your unification with God. Mm -hmm. In Islam, that's conceptualized as moving from conviction and complete submission to Allah to discerning Allah's will and then completely identifying and unifying with Allah's sacred will. Does that resonate with you? I know that you had some of that tradition in your background. It does, it does. And um, like thinking about even how meaningful the pilgrimage to Mecca is, right? Like this is one of the ways that, um, you know, you can even get closer to um, like connecting with Allah's will and um, like how important even that experience is for believers. Um, Mm-hmm. yeah yeah I mean I think all these things are really interesting because you know we can think of them as stage models <laughs> before stage models were a thing right like uh, psychology loves to say you know you start at this place and you end at this place and in between there are all these like benchmarks or kind of milestones that you should hit and I find that a lot of religious traditions or spiritual traditions have a similar model or perspective in the way they give people an idea of what's on the path to come. And part of me wonders if that's because um, there's comfort in kind of knowing, you know, what you should be experiencing at a given point in time, but also just recognizing that for most people, it's much more complicated and nuanced and that no, there, there's no explanation that can tell any person exactly what their own experience is going to be. So it's always just kind of a, a best guess <laughs> of what is going to happen for people. Um, I know that in Eastern traditions like Buddhism and Hinduism, they have disciplines like meditation and yoga, and um, they have these tools that they practice the ideas that you achieve higher and higher states of consciousness, or you unlock certain types of energy. Um, until you're liberated, like completely free from social norms and worldly attachments and things like that. And so the idea is that transcendence of your usual earthly identity allows you to achieve that state of union or oneness. And that's a goal that many traditions um, have. And then they offer these multi-step paths to attain that state of enlightenment or nirvana or whatever, you know, they call it. And then a lot of them also provide like entire holistic lifestyle systems that are supposed to give you higher states, you know, help you achieve higher states, both physically and mentally, emotionally, spiritually, even sexually. So, you know, some, if not all of these traditions um, have like very specific practices that they teach and recommend to help you get there to make sure that you kind of move along the path if you stick with that practice then you should see progress 
Um, I mean, all religions have some sort of rituals which represent movement through the various stages, right? Mm -hmm. So psychological models that have looked at all of these different traditions tend to try and look across all traditions, you know, as I mentioned, to find the patterns. And so everything I've described, um, everything that the psychological models have found basically can be narrowed down to, um, you know, you start with an immature spirituality and that usually relies more on following concrete rules and sometimes having this magical thinking where it's just like, um, if I do this, then miracles will happen. Or if I just pray, then God will solve all my problems. Or if I do this ritual, then this person will fall in love with me. If I ask the ancestors, then, you know, these problems will go away. It's kind of like that. Well. You know, I mean, yeah. It- yeah, exactly. I'll get I'll get wealth. I'll have price, prosperity, and that's you know that's kind of more on the um, immature or less developed side. Whereas mature spirituality has more tolerance for nuance and metaphor, and maybe recognizes the complexity of like, hey, you can be a good person and do all the right things and still have messed up situations, um, but you know, your spirituality is about more than whether or not you get what you were asking for or whether, or, you know, things go your way, whether your life looks the way that you want it to look. So, um, you know, all the different points along that journey, (laughs) or even if you have to cycle through that, uh, that model a few times, um, that is kind of, the fun part right that's where we each get to figure it out but I find it somewhat helpful that there are these um studies out there that take a look at you know what are the common things that people tend to experience or might experience as they you know try to travel along this this spiritual path and are developing in their personal relationship with spirit. I find the use of language here around like quote unquote immature versus mature spirituality to be so interesting because I mean, those words um, have like, can have many different kinds of connotations associated. Yeah, I mean, they can be loaded for sure. It's almost judgmental, right? It's like, oh, you're immature. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Whereas like when I think about like, at least like my understanding of even like spirituality and how you might define that for yourself. Like um, I might not necessarily associate that process of trying to sort it out for oneself as something that could be identified as quote unquote immature. So I just thought Mm -hmm. it was really interesting. Well, yeah, it is interesting. And I think it's also reflective of the fact that most of these models come from a Eurocentric perspective right so one thing that we know about European thought is that it tends to be linear Mm. and even though we can say like we can say that we we understand that these things might be cyclical so people might go through all of what these models say you know they should experience to reach maturity and then have a crisis 
for an epiphany or whatever and start back over at the beginning or go back three steps and you know so it's not really as linear as any stage model is going to present it it's just a way to help understand it but of course it's going to be more complex than that everything's always more complex than the the stage models lead us to believe um so I think that speaks to Miriam I think you're right like that speaks to the fact that you know especially when we're talking about um spirituality and black folks and African spirituality we need different models I mean the models that come out of mainstream society are not going to be sufficient or adequate to understand and describe our experience and our traditions because our traditions tend to be um, a lot more cyclical and I think that you know leads into this question of well what does African spirituality look like? How is it unique? Um, and obviously there's, well, there's not just one African spirituality, right? There's um, hundreds if not thousands of different traditions on the continent of Africa and across the African diaspora. But like with most things, black folks just do stuff different. We bring a whole different flavor to it, right? So, so when when we are thinking about our spiritual development and our um, kind of growing and developing belief and faith and trust, what does that look like? How is that maybe different or you know special? You mean our own, like based on like what could be considered traditional African religions or? Yeah, because I mean, I know that, you know, a lot of people of African descent identify as Christian or Muslim. Mm -hmm. Um, And yet, even in those traditions, we tend to, we tend to retain some of our ancestral kind of perspectives on mm-hmm. spirituality, which are different, right? They're just, they just are different than um, European perspectives or even indigenous Asian perspectives. And I think they, you know, in a lot of ways have similarities with other traditions, but also they have their own kind of unique common elements yes. that unify them across the continent and across the diaspora. And so what are some of those common elements that we might find? And especially though, um, yeah, the, the traditions that fall outside of Christianity and Islam. And we know that on the continent, just as you described in your own experience, people might identify as Christian or Muslim and practice those things outwardly, but there's always this respect <laughs> for, yeah. um, you know, native religions or spiritualities and there's always and there's oftentimes like concurrent belief systems running within a family or within a home and people don't give up easily their uh, indigenous traditions and then there's other people lots of people who specifically embrace them um, and who are returning to them especially in the diasporic world there's a lot of people that are letting go of um Christianity and going back to uh indigenous African spiritualities and so you know what does that mean when we talk about African spirituality 
Um, you know, as you mentioned earlier, there are like so many religions and like clearly I, I'm pretty sure like we're not doc done documenting all of them. And uh, even on the continent and across the diaspora, I can, um, they can be expressed in a variety of ways, but there are some key elements that tend to, um, to sort of reoccur or be at least key components of how we understand um, African religions. Um, the first one being um, anim animistic belief, right? And that can be defined as attributing soul or elements of soul and, and spirits inhabiting plants uh, or um, how, do you call, how do you call objects that are not alive? Um, inanimate. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> inanimate objects, right? Like mm -hmm. uh, attributing in, um, a soul, sometimes human-like qualities to plants and inanimate objects. That tend to be a core element of a lot of African religions. There's also a belief, oftentimes, in multiple deities that, to some extent, govern life, um, human life. Mm -hmm. Multiple deities that may oversee specific um, elements of Earth, whether it's the weather, whether it's you know, the elements, um, sometimes it might even be associated with emotions, um, but multiple deities that govern our life. Um, there tends to also be a belief in the afterlife. And I think this is, this is connected to what you shared around um, like existence, not necessarily being one that is linear and mm -hmm. then even connected with this sense of, um, of rebirth, right? Like death and rebirth, those being big components of um, African religions. It's just sort of like part of it. Um, I think there's there's also an, a belief in, or at least a worship even in nature. So I mentioned the elements, but um, strong emphasis in things like water, um, air, wind, earth, um, plants, trees, and really recognizing um, a certain what's the what's the word that I want to use? Recognizing a certain divinity associated with them, and even our presence here on this earth, and how we interact with nature as something being sacred. Um, those components tend to also be part of uh, many African religions. I mentioned earlier this understanding that um, like life is not linear and through recognizing um, or believing in the afterlife, there's also a connection with veneration of our ancestors. Yeah, understanding that they the the role that they play, so they may not be present in this human realm, but they're very much um, present and even 
can contribute or have impact um, on our existence in this human realm. Mm -hmm. And because of that, our connection to the dead and what transcends this realm is so important and relate and really ties into some of the the worship of even like veneration of our ancestors. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that, so would you say that that's part of the cyclical piece where it's like death is not the end of life. It's just another phase and we keep going. We keep being able to, you know, communicate with in some way or impact our lineage, our family, um, even though we're no longer physically present. Yes, absolutely. So it's it's always felt fascinating to sort of um, even understand some of the more like existential um, like questions around mortality um, and trying to make sense of that even from a Eurocentric uh, lens, right? Like how do people mm -hmm. understand death or fear death? Um, Whereas not to say that it wasn't something that like brought a great sense of grief and loss, um, but the, the fear element is not necessarily something that I remember um, growing up with. Um, yeah, yeah, because, because yeah, that, that makes total sense. Yeah, because there was this understanding that it's not necessarily the end they're still part of of our life and of our existence even as this transition and, uh -huh. and and then I think about like having moved here in the U.S. and some of my interactions with black folks here in the U.S. like even language that is being used when we have our elders um, who, who use language like who are transitioning mm -hmm. instead of dying Mm -hmm. So it, it encapsulates this um, this notion of really again moving to just another another realm and moving through moving to another existence. That's so deep, Miriam. Because I'm as you're describing that, I'm thinking about even having grown up in a Christian identified household. How in my extended family we used to say like whenever there was a baby born or something like that folks would look at the baby and be like oh yeah that's uncle jeff you know reborn or that's you know uncle uh, you know aunt, aunt josephine is is uh you know coming back through this child and so this mm -hmm. idea that you know the ancestors return to us or our our lust our lost loved ones come back to us through you know newly born children through the next generation that they just come through the cycles almost like a reincarnation although it's like but it's a specific energy of that person that is being reborn in this new life and there's elements of that baby that you you feel you know that remind you of this other person and that's um that's that's really interesting yeah that's something that feels like we retain that without even realizing that we retained it because none of those people who were saying those things would ever call themselves ancestor worshipers you know what i mean they would never call themselves practicing african spirituality but that's essentially what that was right it is beautiful you said that it's it's been retained because i see it on the continent and i see it here 
um, the ways that um, folks practicing Christianity or Islam would still merge and infuse some of those beliefs in a, in a way that feels normative. Um, mm-hmm. It's really powerful. So combination of these practices to create, um, I think what comes to mind when I think of um, religiosity of religion on the African continent in this more contemporary um, realm that we're in um, is a little bit of a mixture of all these elements that I talked about and also those Christian or Islamic um, beliefs as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think another thing that you are bringing to mind for me is just like, and again, there's a lot of different African spiritualities, but one thing that seems almost universal with African folks all over the world is this idea that spirit is everywhere and infused in everything and that it's not necessarily relegated to a particular building or a particular day of the week (laughs) or a particular book. It is in every aspect of life. It is, um, you know, you, you talked about animism and the idea that spirit can be in you know, nature and and these kinds of things. But even, again, people in the diaspora that wouldn't say that they believe in animism, still, when we talk about um, our music, our food, our, you know, (laughs) Mm -hmm. um, when we talked about uh, in the previous episode about Black joy, that effervescence, that you know, vitality that we just tend to bring to situations, that is all spirit. And there's something about that black spirit and that we carry that into everything, even, you know, traumatic situations and depressing conditions. um, We tend to bring that idea. I think part of that is, is rooted in the idea that we have um, that again, that we've retained that spirit is found in every place in every situation in every body um and that's not something that every tradition every you know non-african tradition you know claims but i feel like it is true in most african um traditions and uh, just ways of being agreed wow so here's for me uh, the elephant in the room, because you kind of started talking about this as you talked <laughs> about um, Christianity and Islam, um, specifically on the continent, but even in the diaspora, these are two of the most prevalent um, religions that you'll find people identifying with and practicing and finding a lot of, you know, inspiration and support from. Um, we talk about the Black church here in the U.S. as being like our strongest institution and one of the places that we've been able to find refuge from, you know, all types of oppression and, you know, to really uplift ourselves. Um, but my question is, when our religion, the religion that we claim and that we're practicing, is garnered through trauma. So when we've come into that religion through something like slavery, or colonization, when it's been basically forced down our throats 
in one way or another. And that's why we've adopted it. That's why it's now our family tradition. That's why we were born into it rather than it being freely chosen by our ancestors or by us. Mm -hmm. Does that um, limit what that religion, what that particular set of spiritual practices and traditions can really offer us, can do for us? Mm. Um, because it seems like, yeah, I mean, good things can be born through trauma, but that's a heck of a way to Ooh. come into <laughs> something that is supposed to provide uplift and inspiration. You know what I mean? Yes. And when it's paired for so long with something like slavery or with the theft of land and, and wealth, um, it feels like that's a little tainted. And I don't know how you reconcile that psychologically um, without doing some serious like mental backflips. So I don't know. I, I'm putting that out there as a question. I don't know if you want to try to answer it or if that's more for our audience to wrestle with in their own minds and in their own lives. I mean, what do you think? I, I want to wrestle with it, not to answer it, because I'm just going to say it right now, I do not have the answer. <laughs> I, okay. At the same time, I do, I do want to wrestle with it a little bit because it's so real. You know, when you pose that question, I just took a, a deep breath because, yeah, can, does it limit what it can offer us? And then even like what how do we reconcile that psychologically to still be able to draw the comfort, the solace, the, um, the warmth that religion and spirituality tend to bring to people, right? Well, here we're talking specifically about religion. Um, yes, mm -hmm. what do you need to do? What sort of mental gymnastics do we do to be able to sort of anchor ourselves in the, oh, in the practice of Christianity, for example, um, at this moment, it is providing me the sort of comfort and understanding and connection to others and to my community that I yearn for, that I desire. Um, so therefore, like, that's that, right? Like it's meeting its goal and, you know, can it still meet that goal right. without that? With that history, with that yeah. baggage. And like how much of that do we even know or realize? I mean, that is I well. think some people who study like the history of the church and Christianity and how many of us came to it, after they study it, they can no longer practice it because they become so, um, you know, just... It's yeah. one of those things where when you are conscious of something, it becomes really hard to um, not be bothered by it. And mm -hmm. then other people can know that history and study that history and even become scholars of that history. And it doesn't really affect the, their current embrace or practice of the religion. So it's just really interesting that there's that diversity of, of thought out there that, you know, um, that it, it does or does not make a difference for people. I mean, you know, can a religion that has been used to subjugate and oppress us also provide us 
with comfort and liberation. For some people, it obviously can. And for mm -hmm. others, uh, the answer is a clear, resounding no. One of the things I found really interesting, I found a study, um, this is just tangentially related, but um, there's a study by a psychologist, a black psychologist uh, named Stephen Roberts um, over at Stanford University Psychology Department. And in 2020, he and his team did a series of studies. Um, and if you wanna look up his, his write-up, his article on this, he published it. It's called God as a White Man. And um, they found that U.S. Christians, both children and adults, who perceive God as white, also perceive white men and women as more fit for leadership than um, Black people or other people of color. And so the reason I'm bringing this up is just because, um, to me, that's a really strong illustration of how our religious perspectives you know, shape and filter into our just daily um, understandings of society, our way of relating to people. One of the interesting parts of this study was that people who, um, who perceived God to be a white man had a really hard time picturing themselves being able to take orders or instructions from a Black supervisor on their job. And so their ideas around who was worthy or deserving of being listened to and um, who was worthy of having authority was really modeled on their idea of who God was. And so, again, that makes me think like when, and that's not to say that all, you know, Christians in the U.S. think of God as a white man, although I do think that that's the dominant image that has been, mm -hmm. you know, put on us. Um, but it is to say that your religion and the way that that religion has come to you and been presented to you can have an effect not only on the way that you relate to that, that God, that deity, that, um, that set of spiritual practices, but it also just absolutely influences how you operate in the world, right? And how you think about other people too as being in, um, you know, in that image or not. And so obviously we know that that's been used against black folks in a lot of ways. Um, so with knowing that history is again, it's interesting if somebody's able to divorce their current faith from that historical perspective, I think that takes it takes a lot of effort to divorce that because <laughs> even yeah. in our, you know, even in our current lives and our work lives, our religious perspectives absolutely impact us and influence us. And so um, it's almost impossible that that's not influencing how we, um, how we move through life, if that's really our, our religious perspective. So it, it behooves us to kind of think critically about what are the traditions that we've inherited and what are the images and the narratives and the stories and the, um, the ways that that religion has been crafted for us because that's been crafted to a large extent by other human beings and, and by the social context that we exist in. 
You know what you just took me back to? Our conversation about liberation. Mm. Mm -hmm. Because if we're talking about then, like trying to detangle like beliefs or practices or things that we've really um, taken as our own, but that in many ways have been forced upon us. Um, and then looking at what black liberation means or could look like on the individual level, but, and also at the community level, I agree with you. I think it warrants being able to ask yourself these questions and try to tease that apart. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So you mentioned something earlier. Interesting. <laughs> Let me try that. <laughs> so you mentioned something interesting earlier <laughs> that I wanted to come back to, which was um, migration and just um, things that our people brought with them across the ocean, basically. So um, we've incorporated all these different uh, spiritual identities and practices, but there are certain things that like we didn't fully leave behind when we were either forcefully um, migrated or, um, you know, when we, you know, for whatever set of reasons, we might have left one place and gone to another, things travel with people, right? And so, um, what are some of the spiritual beliefs and practices that have come with us and that we find popping up in different parts of the African diaspora that have common roots and can be tied back to our, our continental home? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, the, I kept going back to um, like reflecting on the importance of water and what water means even when trying to understand African religions and even blackness across the diaspora. Like there's just something really meaningful around water. And I mean, thinking about it even um, like water is essential to human life, period human life, plants, like nature, all of it. So it, I think it inherently has a sacredness to it. Um, and then when we're then looking at the, the slave, the enslavement of our people um, mm -hmm. throughout the diaspora, so much that of that occurred through uh, moving across waters, moving the, across. The transatlantic slave trade. And, yes. yes, absolutely. Yes. Precisely. So water, again, continue to be a part of our stories throughout the years, throughout the enslavement of our people, throughout our liberation, throughout I mean, our continued existence. And um, we, we we started you, you and I talking a little bit about um, water deities, and I was I was taken back to um, this water deity in particular, Mami Wata. Um, mm. Growing up, 
hearing that that name being called and sometimes instilling fear from folks, sometimes instilling joy, um, sometimes instilling comfort, um, safety, a sense of safety, um, hope even, right? Mm. Like when thinking about Mami Wata and as a deity, this, um, Mami Wata is often depicted as having um, human attributes and also fish-like attributes, whether it's a fish tail uh, and sometimes even re reptilian attributes. So it might be a snake tail, oftentimes depicted, mm. um, being depicted um, having all these attributes and really, really powerful deity. And across even the Atlantic um, borders of the African continent, there's a lot of stories around villages interacting yeah. with Mami Wata, with her spirit, um, sometimes being benevolent, sometimes being rageful, all mm -hmm. the above, right? And her presence <laughs> is also... <laughs> Her presence, she shows up across the, the continent and then also shows up across the diaspora. So mm -hmm. in basic like Haiti, um, this deity oftentimes being named La Sirene in Cuba uh, being named Yemaya. And actually if I even go back to the West African, West African coast, um, thinking about Yemaya as a goddess as well, um, are mm -hmm. some of the terms that have been utilized to describe um, this deity. And mm -hmm. then across the Americas, same things, right? Like Yemaya, La Sirena in Mexico. Um, this presence has also been seen in yeah. Brazil. Um, so from Africa, to the Caribbeans, to South America, to Northern America, this water deity is one that has constantly um, appeared. And to this day has followers, worshipers, um, folks that really connect to, to this spirit. Yeah, I, I'm just thinking about, um, yeah, you mentioned, you know, like I know in the, in the Yoruba tradition, uh, of Nigeria, um, Yemoja or Yemoya. Um, and then I remember that my husband who's from a coastal village in Ghana has so many stories about how, you know, he actually never learned to swim because <laughs> the kids were discouraged um, from going to the water because, you know, the parents were afraid they would drown. And the story that they used to keep them from going down to the water at night was that Mami Wata would come for them. And they were all terrified of Mami Wata, but then at the same time, the fishermen took every Tuesday off to honor her, you know? So they would actually not conduct business on Tuesdays because that was the day of Mami Wata. So yeah, even in, you know, with the Akan of, of Ghana, this was a very prevalent um, spirit. And again, a lot of these people might identify as Christian, but yes. it was built into their, you know, society, like this is someone who we take seriously. This is something we honor. 
Mm-hmm. And yeah, so you're right. That water spirit, water deity seems really prevalent. And I even saw in California that there's um, people who, um, whether because they, you know, have roots in uh, Latin American countries where there's a strong African presence or because they're from, you know, parts of West Africa, that they would have festivals and ceremonies in honor of um, Yemaya as well. So why do you think that is? What is going on that (laughs) even across the diaspora, this particular spirit, um, this particular energy feels so compelling for our people, both historically and right now, what do you think it is we're connecting to there? I mean, this is me just free associating right now, right? But I think it goes back to in part what you shared earlier around like what we brought, what was brought with folks, right? Like what um, continued and like, like kept um, kept reemerging as part of stories being told, as part of practices being emphasized and traditions being passed down uh, from generation to generation. So there's, you know, in many ways we didn't lose ourselves um, throughout, despite the best efforts, we didn't lose ourselves. So I think that's mm. part of why it continued, those, those beliefs continue to emerge and even to still be present in this day and age. And right now, I imagine probably a connection to, to life. Like I think about water giving life, right? Like when we even come into this world, um, like what is associated with water. Um, and, and I wonder if given everything that is going on in the world currently, um, if that plays into this desire to want to connect with what allows us to feel alive mm-hmm. um, or anything associated with, yeah, life. I love it. Yeah. Well, thank you for that interpretation. <laughs> <laughs> Your free association. Um, yeah, maybe it'll resonate with someone. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's as good an explanation as, as any. And I think, you know, that idea that despite, you know, despite um, the efforts to get us to lose ourselves, we have not lost ourselves. That is beautiful. Yes. And that's what, you know, spirituality is all about. I think that we are probably um, at the end of our time allotted for this episode, and we have not even scratched the surface of this (laughs) vast topic. But um, in closing, we would love to leave some questions for you all, our audience, just to think about, um, you know, spirituality, the role of belief and faith and trust in your own life? I mean, I guess the most um, basic question is, what do you believe in? What do you have faith in? What do you trust? Who do you trust? Um, And what is that trust built upon? Um, You know, what um, is the purpose of our spirituality? We've been talking about this and obviously there's, there's strong benefits to spirituality, but for each of us, 
you know, it's up for us to determine like, what is the point of having a spiritual practice? What is the point of going through life with this belief in anything? Um, some people would say that's naive or pointless. So if we um, have a spiritual practice or a tradition that we identify with, what should it help us achieve? What should it help us do or be or have in our lives? And what do we ideally choose as our spiritual tradition if we do have a choice? Obviously, many of us feel like we just want to carry on the traditions that we've inherited or um, that have been passed down to us because we believe in them or because we're afraid of the ostracism that we'll face if we don't. But um, for those of us who maybe are floating a little bit more or, or questioning or seek seeking, um, what ideally is it that we're looking for in a spiritual tradition that would really satisfy us and fulfill that sense of, um, you know, spiritual nourishment, spiritual fulfillment that we might be seeking. And then I think the last question I have, and I'm sure you have some, Miriam, is like, how do we maintain our collective identity even while we're choosing a unique spiritual path? And what I mean by that is, you know, um, we all want to have a sense of belonging. As Miriam mentioned earlier, we all want to feel like connected to other people. But sometimes when we go off on our own and we're trying to choose a path that maybe feels right for us, maybe we're listening to our intuition. We've had particular experiences that make the tradition of our ancestors or the tradition of our families or our communities not really fit quite as well for us anymore. It can be very daunting to, you know, choose a different um you know, to learn something different, to do something different, to begin exploring. Um, maybe you find a teacher or a practice or something that you want to delve into, but how do you maintain um, your identity as being a part of that family or that community while doing something that's a little bit off the beaten path? Um, I think a lot of us think of ourselves as, um, a lot of people feel like they've been rejected from their communities once they choose a different path. Mm -hmm. um, but for a lot of us, it could also be kind of a, a self-isolation thing where to protect ourselves from the judgment, we will kind of not share that aspect of our lives with other people and that can create barriers. So how do we be authentic in our connections to other people while you know, giving ourselves the freedom to grow and explore and do what we need to do spiritually until we reach a place where we feel good about, about where we are. You know, I, I don't have any other questions. I think those were, you know, what I had was very similar to what you already shared. Um, but what I do want to, to note is this quote that I pulled that felt very meaningful. And it, I think it signifies the importance of asking yourself all these questions um, that Dr. Laura shared, um, especially as a black individual trying to make sense of that when it comes to our um, well-being and freedom and um, 
yes, like how, how do we sort of um, get to that in a way that allows us to feel whole? And I, and I felt like that quote was, was really meaningful. And it's by Archie Smith Jr. And it's, this person says, to ignore the religious nature of human beings while seeking to restore them to psychic health would not only trivialize a vital mental health resource in the Black experience, it would further alienate Black people from awareness of the creative and spiritual depth in which their humanity participates and upon which their total well being ultimately depends. Mm. Yeah. Well, that feels like a really good note to end on. <laughs> I agree. That says a lot. Yeah. So we're signing off. We, you know, wish all of our people the utmost spiritual development, enlightenment, upliftment. <laughs> we deserve it all. We hope you find your connection to whatever it is that helps you to see that you are whole and um, helps you to heal and to just understand how precious you are. And with all of the diversity within our community, all the different spiritual beliefs and practices, each and every one of us is part of this global family that is so valuable so precious and so magical so please um just always keep that in the forefront folks and we hope that everyone will be well um for the rest of the month of november we will be signing off to go do um thanksgiving type things with <laughs> family and and community but we will see you all again in december where we will pick up this conversation um, with another black and brainy topic. So yeah. peace, everybody. Bye. Take care.